1: Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 2 through 5.
0: But anyway, these three friends, when they had, verse 12, when they had lifted their eyes afar off, they knew him not. In other words, they didn't recognize Job at first. They knew him not. They lifted up their voice and wept, and they every everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. These are all classic ways to express grief and despair. They wailed, emotional shock. They wept in sorrow. They tore their robes. It's very Jewish to tear your robes when, when you're in, in broken heartedness, And they threw dust over their heads towards heaven as, as a way of expressing deep grief and their helplessness. And uh, so they handle the situation like a funeral. Job is almost there, in fact, wishes he was in a funeral before we're through. Verse 13, So they sat down with him upon the ground, how long? Seven "Seven days and nights. Wow, seven days and seven nights. And they none spoke a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. That's actually pretty sensitive. It's amazing when someone has grief how we want to call. Yeah, I can remember when my dad died. I was getting my mother just settled down, just beginning to deal with it, and someone would call and commiserate over the phone and she'd get all broken up again. After work. I mean, if they just would leave us alone for a few days, not, you know, you feel you have to do something. It's amazing. The solitude is 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 in many respects often the best healer. But Anyway, 7 days was the statutory term for mourning the dead, by the way. We see that in Genesis 50 for Samuel 31, Ezekiel 3 and other places. Which means we got through a full chapter. That's pretty good. We're doing fine. Here's Job chapter 3. And after this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. When he says his day, it probably means his birthday, the day of his birth. Weeks may have gone by, apparently, and he's baffled, he's buffeted, tormented. Job longs for death. In this chapter, he's going to ask three poignant questions. First is, why was I Ever born? I don't know how many of you ever felt, have been that low, that low. But I think many of us have gone through a period where we really, you know, in our heart of hearts, raise that question. Verse 2 Job spake and said, or actually, he was as answered, Let the day perish when I was born, and the night in which it was said, This is a man child conceived. And by the way, there's a, there are other Psalms of griefful that are analogous to Job 3 here in Jeremiah 20 and Lamentations 3, but especially Psalm 22, verse 1. There was one that bellowed out like this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus quotes that in Matthew 27. Anyway, verse 4. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Let not the light shine upon it. Just to give you a flavor, we're just getting... A, and the translations are not easy, by the way. Almost every major author has does his own translation because the Hebrew is very difficult. But it is incredibly eloquent. There's darkness is going to be mentioned in the next five times using four different words. And the verbal tapestry here is clearer in the Hebrew, of course, in all six lines of verses 4 and 5, they're unified by various verbal signals. Verse 5, let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let the cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify or stain or challenge it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined into the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months or let nor let it not rejoice among the days. Another way to say it. Lo, let that night be solitary, let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it, that curse the day, who are ready to raise up their morning, it may say in your translation. Actually, is raise up their Leviathan. The word Leviathan is mentioned in five passages in the Scripture. Here, in chapter 41, where we will take it up and talk about it. Psalm 74, Psalm 104, and Isaiah 27. These are possible reference to dinosaurs. And we'll take that up as a topic when we get to chapter 41. Job is probably simply referring to the custom of sorcerers or enchanters who claim to have power to make a day unfortunate by rousing the dragon asleep in the sea. It's poetic license on a common idiom is what we're dealing with here. Remember, the book of Job is mostly like an opera. It has a front end and a back end that's prose. But most of the, you'll, you'll discover as we get into this, the actual rhetoric that's recorded with these discourses is incredibly eloquent. And uh it's it's uh, almost in the end of itself in terms of the eloquence with which it's expressed. Continuing at verse 9, Job says, Let the stars of the twilight therefore be dark. Let it look for light but have none. Neither let it see the darling of the day. And I like the way the Hebrew says it, the eyelids of the morning. <laughs> the eyelids of the... <laughs> that's great. Verse 10, because it shut up not the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. This is marvelous poetry, Hebrew poetry, of course. And Job's pressure, of course, is increasing, and he's beginning to crumble under it. And uh, there's nothing harder for us to understand than unexplained trouble. It's different if you know why it happened, as it causes it. When it's just surrounding you for no apparent reason, that's the, that's the hardest to deal with. Verse eleven, Job continues, "Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly?" See the second question: Why, why was I born then? Why didn't I die at birth? Easy. He's low. He's, he, he's really down, understandably. Verse Why did the knees prevent me? Why did the breasts should I that, that I should suck? He's saying he said my wife, my life has been totally meaningless. But then he gives us a very primitive view of death that he'll revise before this book is over. Uh, Verse 13. For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then I had been at rest. With kings and councils of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or as a a, a hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants, which never saw the light. There were wicked there. Uh, The wicked ceased from troubling And the weary be at rest. There, the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. That's his concept of death. He could be at least at rest in solitude. That's what he's yearning for. Many people see death that way: time of rest, so on. Uh, There's a play called Our Town. Many of us got involved with it when in high school, which uh, deals with that sort of a perspective. Now, Job's understanding of life after death is going to need enlightenment, and he gets it before this book is over. In fact, in chapter 19, is one of the most incredible declarations of the resurrection that you'll find in the Old Testament when we get there. In fact, this may be one of the reasons this suffering comes into his life, because it really sharpens his understanding of what life is really all about. His view of death, Job's view of death, will be very different by the end of the book. Well, now we get to Job's third question. is Why can't I die now? You know, why was I born? Why didn't I die at birth? Why can't I die now? He's, re- he's he's really down. That's what he boils down to. Verse 20, Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life unto the bitter in the soul which long for death but it cometh not and dig for it more than for hid treasures. Suicide is never contemplated here. Death must be, must be God's gift and for Job now, this is the only possible um, evidence of God's goodness if you just take me out of here. That's Job's mindset. That's his attitude. Doesn't mean he's going to kill, kill himself. That's not. That's not in view here. It's just an expression of how desperate he is, how how uh, troubled he is. Verse twenty-two, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? For my sign cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. So that's, jo- that's uh, Job's declaration of how extremely uh, troubled he is. Now come his three counselors, Eliphaz the eloquent, Bildad the brutal, and Zophar the zealous. Eliphaz is the oldest, and there's a smoothness about him, there's a, and a courtesy, at least at the beginning, that indicates he's learned how to be diplomatic, how to say unpleasant thing in gracious ways. <laughs> Bildad is brutal and outspoken. He's going to lay it on Job, and he doesn't care what the effect is. That's why I call him Bildad the Brutal. I use that, that thing just to help you remember which is which. And Zophar so is compassionate and emotional, but he speaks with a great deal of force trying to motivate Job. Now, these char- these are oversimplifications. All these characters are too human to be stereotypes or caricatures. There's not some mystical structure here. These very much take the the character of being real people. But our own philosophies will be echoed in their arguments. And there are at least 18 speeches on this, what I'll call a wisdom school on a dunghill. (laughs) Because there they are. They're going to have this eloquent philosophical discussion. There's going to be ten different speeches by Job, three by Eliphaz, three by Bildad, and two by Zophar. And it's not quite that simple, but that's just to give you a rough perspective that you can break it down a few other other ways. What's going to make these discussions so provocative is it's hard to find any proposition in the book which is not, in some sense, correct taken in isolation. This is going to be a marvelous example of things that are really true in general, but not here. How important it's going to teach us, how important it is to apply it to the, uh, to the right fact situation. There's not going to be any meeting of the mind in this clash of words that we're going to encounter. Job is not arguing a point. He's trying to understand his experience. There's a big difference. Big difference. He's dreadfully in earnest, and yet he's also very transparently honest. Job acquits himself quite well here. His friends will talk about God, but Job talks to God. And uh, this makes him the only authentic theologian in the bunch. He tells God exactly how he feels and just what he thinks. And there can't be any prayers better than that. So Job's on track, even though as desperate as he is and so forth. By the way, nowhere does Job bewail the losses of chapter 1. He's reconciled to that. I don't know if I could be. He did. Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I mean, okay. There's no place that he bewails the uh, illness of chapter 2. He's upset about it, but he, he's in a sense, reconciled. He's trying to understand why. His concern from beginning to end is with God. Not his health. I'm not his wealth or his health. Chapter 1 chapter 2 but his life with God. It is because he seems to have lost God that he's in such torment. The real insight to Job's uh, anxiety is not the wealth, not the health problems, is that he he fears that there's his relationship with God is severed, and he can't handle that. He can't handle that. Let's up to Job. Chapters 4 and 5... Constitute Eliphaz's first discourse. We're not going to <laughs> relax. We're not going to go through all uh, eighteen speeches in Job. We, you know, it's a forty-two chapter book. We're going to try to do it in in, in a fewer number of sessions than that. Because, but once you we'll go through Eliphaz, you'll get the flavor that pretty much characterizes the others. And we'll talk about the others subsequently. But but we'll go to this. We'll we'll actually go read through chapter four and five. And uh, Eliphaz is going to put his address in chapters 4 and 5. He'll speak again in chapter 15 and chapter 22. But his first argument breaks down into six main points, and when you hear them, you'll get the gist of what all the others are going to be saying through the rest of the book. Eliphaz begins by saying to Job, in fact, he's going to say, follow your own advice. Verse 1 in chapter 4. Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, now notice the way he does this. He's really got courtesy here. If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking or refrain from words? In other words, do you mind that we need to talk about this? See, you sense at least an apparent courtesy up front. He gets tougher as it goes, but at least he's starting out courteously. Verse 3, Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have beholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it has come upon thee, and thou faintest, it toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and uprightness of thy ways? He's saying to Job, you've been a counselor to others. To many people, you've identified the problem, and you assist other people dealing with it. Now it's your turn. You need to follow your own advice. Pretty good opener, okay? But then he goes on to define the problem. And we learn Eliphaz's basic principle of life, verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. See, Eliphaz's basic principle is you reap what you sow. That's certainly true in the general. Is it necessarily true here? You remember the psalmist said, Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and I've been old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. But you see, Eliphaz is going too far. Uh, That's one thing in an abstract principle, it's quite another to apply it to Job's case. Eliphaz deserves the retort by Job. Job should have said something like, you haven't seen much. <laughs> He's relying, Eliphaz is relying on his own experience to generalize. Verse 9, By the blast, Eliphaz continues, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken, the old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. (laughs) Well, what Eliphaz's argument lacks in substance, he makes up for with rhetoric. (laughs) There are no fewer than five different words for lion in that verse. This is incredibly eloquent Hebrew that's going on here. Eliphaz uses a pride of lions, or a family of lions, to describe the natural strength of human beings. and It appears strong, but in God's judging hand, it's broken. See, the argument is that the righteous are never punished, and only the unrighteous suffer. That's base, Eliphaz's basic premise. In fact, he says, "Where did you ever see an innocent man uh, perish? Where did you ever see an unrighteous man succeed?" Is, is what's he, the question he's begging? And of course, uh, he, he concludes that Job's problem is caused by his own sin—something he's hiding, something he isn't admitting. He said, "In other words, Job, if you'll admit what's wrong with the sin, then everything's going to be all right." Well, that's a principle that needs to be re-examined. You remember in John nine, Jesus said, "You know," they, or they asked Jesus, the "Disciples, the blind." Who sinned, this man or his parents? Remember? Well, it was in this case for, this, for the glory of God. But remember Moses in Midian? He was 40, 40 years in Midian. Married to Yvonne de Carlo, all those years. You know, And David in his hideout from Saul. Both Jeremiah and Joseph were in a pit. Did they deserve to be? Daniel was in a lion's den. Did, did he deserve to be? Was he there because he did something wrong? Hardly. He was there because he did something right. Paul was in prison more than once. Was it because he did something wrong? Was it sin that put him in that kind of a situation? Here's Job in the city dump, same situation. All the heroes of Hebrews 11, we go through what some people call the hall of faith, all, all those people with all the sawed in half and all, all those different things going on, What? because they were wrong, it's because they were right. So there's it's not that simple. And of course, the ultimate example is Jesus. Jesus was the innocent one to suffer for all of us. Anyway, Eliphaz goes on to tell tell Job that if he will fear God and confess his sins, everything's going to be all right. Eliphaz apparently recognized that relying on his own experiences makes him a little vulnerable, so now he's going to fall back on a claim of divine revelation. I have a prophecy. No, sir. Okay. Uh, It's going to be very similar to what happens to Balaam in Numbers 24, but let's move on here. He's going to break down his message in two parts. And first, he, he's going to refer to a night vision that came to him. This is going to get kind of spooky here. So hang on, verse 12 to 15 is, 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 is pretty spooky. Verse 12, Eliphaz, speaking to Job. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In other words, by stealth in the Hebrew. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. The word here is ruach, which also can mean wind, but it's very strange. It's usually in the feminine. Here it's used with masculine verbs. His stood, his appearance, so forth. Uh, it's, it, it's clear that what's intended to, to communicate is the spirit of God, not just wind. By the way, the same thing happens in the Greek in Th- 2 Thessalonians with the restrainer. It's a neuter, and yet it's used in a, in a masculine way, and so forth. It's a hint that it's the Holy Spirit. But anyway... Uh, That's what he's intending to communicate here. Verse 16, It stood still, and I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes, and there was silence. And I heard a voice saying. In fact, it says, I heard a still, small voice. Verse 17, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Now this banality, if you will, makes Eliphaz sound pretentious. And it's really quite unfair. Job hasn't questioned the ways of God he hasn't claimed to be better than God. All he's done is proclaim his misery. But Eliphaz has taken this you know, in that direction. Verse 18. Behold, he put no trust in his servants and his angels, he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay whose foundations in the dust which are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without regarding it. They actually destroyed it. It's beaten in pieces, whatever he says. But anyway... Doth not their excellency, which is in them, go away? They die, even without wisdom. This whole argument is based on the fact that infinite justice rules the universe. You can't argue with that. God is holy and pure, pure. So, and what chance would a man uh, who have to stand before him and claim to be uh, sinless? This is good theology, it would seem. Even Socrates understood. This, when he declared, perhaps deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. That's a profound insight into the justice of God. And we're going to see before the end of this book that this was a a problem that Job himself was indeed facing. He did not understand his own heart, and so he so confesses at the end. But the problem with Eliphaz's argument is that he sees God only as a God of justice. See, God is a God of justice. What he's saying is true, but it's only part of the story. Only part of the fact. How often we come to an erroneous judgment, even in human affairs, when we only have half the facts. And, uh, Elphaz sees nothing of God's love, compassion, or forgiveness. He has no grasp of discipline or training from the Father's hand. It's a whole different concept. See, because he's got an unbalanced theology, that his truth becomes false in its application. You can take something that's true and misapply it, is the point. How how we need to understand that? See, this is why many people will take partial truths and end up in error. Charles Spurgeon uh, spoke about preachers who went about with a theological revolver in their ecclesiastical trousers. Celifaz <laughs> <laughs> continues to argue that uh, trouble comes only from, from sin. But the gulf between Job and his friends is beginning to open up, and uh, Job's position is is more audacious, believing uh, uh, more than uh, uh, more believing in effect in God than Eliphaz's insipid insinuations. And he's uh, he's not going to be reminded. uh, Excuse me, he's not going to be uh, silenced by reminders that it is not for a puny man to question the ways of Almighty. Job's questions may be unanswerable, but he will ask them, and he will insist upon his right to ask them before it's over. Let's get through chapter 5, verse 1. Eliphaz continues, Call now, if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints will thou turn? For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. See, that's what he's saying. In fact, that's really what's wrong. You're vexed and, and jealous, and that's why you have trouble. Verse 3, Eliphaz says, I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. Now this is a nasty blow by Eliphaz. This is a hidden reference to the calamity that took place in chapter 1, when the roof fell down and killed all of Job's ten children, seven sons and three daughters. Eliphaz is suggesting that these things, such things can only happen when uh, there's something wrong in Job's life. He's blaming Job for the killing of his children. You can imagine that Job's having a, getting a bellyful of the comfort he's getting from Eliphaz. Huh? Verse 5 Continue Whose harvest the hungry eateth up and taketh it even out of thorns, and the robbers swath up their substance. And although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. Yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Uh, or The uh, uh, Hebrews are the sons of burning coal lift up the sky. Have you ever seen a fire? You've seen the sparks go up. Well, that's, he's saying that the, that uh, uh, man is born to trouble just as the sparks fly upward. And Trouble comes from sin and if you've got trouble, sin has to be the reason. Stop and think. Do you see the logical error there? Trouble comes from sin. So if you have trouble... Sin has to be the reason. You see the logical error. See, trouble comes from sin, but trouble can come from lots of other places too. Follow me. So, in fact, you may have trouble. Doesn't sin could be one of the possibilities? There are others, but that's the logical. See, this is one of the more conspicuous logical fallacies here. Now, the next section, Eliphaz is going to make the point that there's no playing games with God because God knows too much. He's got all the facts. That's basically it here. So what he's going to say is true. He's just misapplying it. Verse 8. Now says, I would seek unto God and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who giveth rain upon the earth and sendeth waters upon the fields to set upon high those that be low and that those that mourn should be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of, his, of the would is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as the night. And he saveth the poor from the sword and from the mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. This is one of the most beautiful creedal hymns in the Bible. It simply says God is in control and that he's so clever and wise that you cannot deceive him. Just give up and and get it out into the open and God will bless you. That's sort of the thrust of Eliphaz's argument here.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.